0: This Wednesday, we're starting the book of Luke. Uh, Can't go wrong with Jesus. Luke has a very interesting perspective, way of writing, brilliant book. So we'll begin Luke this Wednesday. You can join us for a meal at 5.30. Uh, We get to sit, talk. Uh, Your kids have something to do from every age. It's awesome. It's one of my favorite times of the week. So that's Wednesday starting at 5.30 And then today, we're beginning a series that I call Ignorant. Good name, huh? I got some flack from it from people. I don't think you should call it ignorant. You should do it positive. No, I like ignorant, and here's why. Uh, The inspiration was a couple years ago, I read an article called Unskilled and Unaware. I'll explain that like this, the whole article It's like this. You ever watch the show, The Office? You sinners. (laughs) I read my Bible and pray. That's all I do. On The Office, the boss, his name is Michael Scott. Michael Scott believes he is the greatest boss ever. He is not. He is a moron. That is unskilled and unaware, right? You don't even know how bad you are. So that's kind of the idea, like, we can be ignorant of things, but we can be, like, blissfully ignorant and not even knowing it. We're just going, like, hey, man, everything's great. Well, I don't know about that. So my, my premise is we're going to grab some things that it's really easy to be ignorant about, culture today, um, sexuality, which is a big issue, uh, sin, the Bible, like, what is this book that we hold? Is it a magic book? Is it, if you have the right version, King James, <laughs> giant print, red letter edition, study note Bible, that it like puts a force field around you? Like, what is, how did we get it? And what is its purpose? Stuff like that. Um, God's will. Who is Jesus? So some of these big ideas, some of them very cultural, we'll grab them, we'll pound them, and then I know that there'll be questions. So for the next season, after every 11 o'clock service, at 12, 30, 12, 40, somewhere in there, over at our office, I'll just take questions for 20 minutes or two hours, however long it takes. So that'll be kind of the, the way we're going to go forward. So we got a lot to do today. Um, I actually, yesterday, I, I spent the whole morning cutting this message down. I had about an hour and 40 minutes that I needed to cut down to an hour and 20 minutes. So <laughs> let's go. 2 <laughs> Timothy chapter 4. Verse 1 I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Jesus. We are grateful to be those who you have chosen to be adopted as sons, as daughters, to be brought into your family. We are glad to be sent out as ambassadors of this adoption. And so I ask this morning, that you would give to us, like the men of Issachar in the Old Testament, an understanding of the times that we live in so that we'll know what to do. So would you sharpen? Would you instruct? Would you open eyes? We ask this in your name, amen. Amen. In verse four, it says there's coming a time when people will not listen to the truth. Is that today? Have you noticed that there are certain conversations you cannot have? That there are certain ideas that you're not really allowed to present? And if you do, there can be really bad consequences for that. So there's a rugby player named Israel Folau who posted something that was about sin and hell, and he got fired from his job. And you can't go a week without something being posted on social media that's not politically correct. That's not inside the the realm of what's allowed. You can't go a week without somebody being caught up in that and their social media account going dark or them being ostracized or them being forced to apologize for talking about something that we can't talk about. And if they won't, they'll just be shouted almost into submission, right? That's the world we live in. So more than ever today, I need your brains. Um, The topics we talk about might become more interesting to you, but I don't know if they're more important than this one. And here's the reason. There are these cultural flows right now that they're okay in culture, but what's happening is they're creeping into the church. And now I'm having conversations with people that love Jesus that believe in the Bible, that would affirm the gospel. And when they're talking, they're expressing ideas that I say, whoa, that's being shaped by culture. And it's actually anti-Jesus, if you look down at the very bottom of it. And if we're not careful, what happens to the church is this. We become the proverbial frog in the pot that the temperature is so gradual and the culture changes so slowly that we don't even know it and what we hold dear drowns and dies. And that's something that I think can happen. So today, my order is simple. I wanna look at three cultural flows that I think are there right now and then try to give us marching orders for what we do as believers in the culture that we live today. And I'll preface this all by this. Um, This is my opinion on these things, no doubt about it. So you can push back against me and do that. Email me, matt at edgewaterfellowship.org, no problem. But here is the thing. Um, In the last couple weeks, I've read five books on this and I can't even name how many articles I've read on it. And it's something that I've been aware of for a while and watching. So I don't think I'm detached from it. I've talked to one of my, my theology professor about it as well. So I've tried to really grasp what is happening and I think these three are it, all right? So let's go. Number one, cultural flow, meism. That's my term. And what it means is this I've got to be me. Have you heard that? It is the rise of the autonomous individual as the greatest thing, okay? Now, that's always been there. But meism or this, I've got to be me, has been injected with steroids because of social media, because of celebrity sirens just saying, hey, you act the way that you're supposed to act. There's just been this injection of strength into this idea, right? It's there. And what meism has done is this number one, it's become anti institutional. So if it's, a, it's, if it's all about me as an autonomous individual, then I don't need institutions. So in Grant's past, do we still have the Elks Lodge? No, why? Because there was no members anymore, right? That's why. Um, The Masonic Lodge, if you look at their role, their people that are involved in the Masonic Lodge, it's just disappearing, why? Because we're anti-institutional, right? We're, We're against those things. Rotary Club, look at membership in Rotary Club. All these institutions that have been there for a long time, nobody is in them anymore. And the church is on that same chopping block. So I talk to people and they'll say, Matt, I am religious, but I am not into organized religion. I say you will love Edgewater then because we are not organized. Come, (laughs) right? Try to park here, right? (laughs) It's that same sentiment. So what's happening now is this. People have a very low priority on community. So we'll we'll stay at home and we'll podcast, right? We'll, We'll get the information, but we won't be connected. And what I tell people like that is this. It's like eating white rice, man. You can survive on it, but all the protein and vitamins, all the vitality of our faith has been drained out of that. So if you want a great book on this, it's by Robert Putnam, and it's called Bowling Alone. And it was written 20 years ago. And in Bowling Alone, the title comes from this idea that he saw. More people 20 years ago were bowling, but less people... We're in leagues. So what was happening was this, more people were just going bowling by themselves, but they weren't in leagues in community anymore. They had the activity, but they had no connectivity. He saw that 20 years ago. Has it got better or worse? Oh my goodness, it has gotten so much worse. We are lonely now. It is an epidemic in America. We are the loneliest we've ever been in our history. Here's what's happening too. Here's what's amazing to me. I used to have conversations with single people about this. And I would say, well, it's social media and it's, it's all those kind of things. But you know what? I'm having conversations now with married people who are saying, Matt, I'm lonely. I'm like, but you're married. Yeah, I know I'm married, but it made it worse. Now that I'm married, I see my family less. I see my friends less. I'm less involved in community that I used to be involved. I go to groups less and less and less. And this is across the nation we are lonely right so it's anti institutional me is number 2 meism says this the autonomous individual is free from all societal and biological restraints right cuz i am most important so i should not have a biological or i should not be have a societal restraint on me And whatever I feel is right should be celebrated. You are so brave. So if today I feel like a man, hey, that's great. You're a man. But if tomorrow you feel like a dog, that's just as great and just as appropriate. And so if you were with us a couple of months ago on a Wednesday night, I actually shared an article about a group of men who believe they're dogs. Right? You can Google if you want. And they will spend $4,000 on the, these custom made dog suits that they put on and they act like dogs. So if you knock on their door, they will open the door with their mouth, greet you with a bark and sniff you in somewhere that you don't wanna be sniffed. It's insane. Like the one guy was like, he was proud of himself because he was crate trained. He had a regular bed and this little crate, and he crawls into this crate and gets in there. And he's like crunched in there. And the guy with the video camera is like, bro, that doesn't look comfortable. He goes, no, no, it's not that bad at all. And his face is like smushed up against the cage. It's insane, right? Pre-internet, right? Who didn't, when you were young, pretend you were some kind of animal, right? A dog, or a cat, or a lion, or a tiger, or a T-Rex, or a beaver, or an ostrich, something. But you grew out of it. Now, with the internet, you Google, man, I think I'm a dog. And then all these other people are like, I think I'm a dog too. Well, then it must be valid because we all feel this way, right? That's meism. It's like this echo chamber now that reinforces this society, biological constraints, forget them. Whatever I feel is right is most important. And then, thirdly, meism, and, and I got this from The Guardian. And it's an excellent article. Meism has weaponized sex. So now promiscuity, and this is their line, promiscuity, not a Christian magazine, promiscuity is the new social activism. So now you want to be an activist? You shove your sexuality into people's face because whatever you feel is right, is right. So it's been weaponized, right? Okay, so you take that. You take this autonomous individual, Here's the house of cards. If you define everything by how you are feeling, right? I feel this way, you feel that way. Then guess what should not happen to you? No one should hurt your feelings. That's where we're at today. So certain conversations can't be had because it might hurt my feelings. And my feelings as an autonomous individual is most important now. So if you want a great book on this, and I would say this, if you are talking with young people, just read this book. It's written by a liberal, atheist, college professor at NYU. Not a Christian dude, he's saying, here's what I have seen happen to my students and it's not good. The book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's brilliant. And to quickly, here's the premise of that book. He says this, here's what happened in our culture. In the 70s, we became concerned about safety. And the reasons were super valid then. Because there was this car that if you ran into the back of this car, it exploded. Remember that? It's called the Ford Pinto. So Ralph Nader and they were like, hey, that's not good. You should not have a car that explodes if it gets run into. So there became this like, hey, we gotta be a little bit safer as a community. So they started to get safer. So that started it. But then it expanded not just from corporate safety, it expanded in the 80s to personal safety. So in the 80s, we have laws like everybody has to wear their seatbelt. Right? If you're my age, you remember that when I grew up, I didn't have to wear my seatbelt until I was like 12 or 13. I'm like, what? This is crazy. Right? Now my kids will not get in a car without putting on their seatbelt. They've been trained so well. And then it expanded to motorcycles. you got to wear a helmet. That was in the 80s too. And it just kept growing, right? To If you're on a bicycle and you're a child you better have a helmet on, right? It's expanding. It's going bigger and bigger. Growing up as a 47-year-old, when I was 12 or 13, if I wore a helmet, it would have been dangerous to my health because I would have showed up at the jumps, and they'd be like, dude, what is on your head, bro? Um, a helmet? Why? Uh, to protect my brain? What? Why do you think God gave you a skull, bro? Use it. Take that thing off, right? That was my paradigm. But now we've gone so far the other way that if we see a kid without a helmet on a bike, we're like, 911, call the cops. Because we become safety. Well, here's what he argues. We've got safe in the 70s corporately. We've got safe in the 80s personally. We just expand it. By the year 2000, 2005, we're super safe. What's left? Your feelings we got to make sure everybody's feelings are safe now. And that's the final frontier. So what happened was he just saw this explosion of people needing to be safe from their feelings. And he's teaching in a college, just going, what is happening to my students? And here's the big one. He says this, I'm at a college. We train lawyers. Now, What we used to be able to do was do these test cases, bring in an actual case of something that happened, you pour over it, you try to defend it, you do whatever, and then you see what your outcome is. Well, they used to do rape cases. Guess what you can't do now in colleges? Training lawyers. You can't talk about rape because it hurts people's feelings. So here's what's happening. We're now releasing lawyers bar exam lawyers into the world that do not know how to prosecute a rape case because their feelings might be hurt. And so now they're going to go and they're going to try to prosecute a rapist, but you'll have this old dude that knows how to defend it. He'll get the guy off and you'll have a rapist released on the streets, which makes things more dangerous than they were before. This is from a liberal atheist professor at NYU. He says, it is shaping our culture in dangerous ways. This whole thing. Be careful of it. So this meism now has made certain topics, you can't talk about them. Can't talk about them. So that's the first thing, the rise of the autonomous individual as preeminent. Number two, cultural shape. This is one that I had to really pare down because it's super complicated. And if you know this theory, you're going to be mad at me because I oversimplify. I'm sorry, I only have so much time. You can Google it, I'll give you books on it. It's called critical theory. Critical theory could be better called cultural Marxism. You guys know what Marxism is? Karl Marx, 150 years ago, says that the world is being oppressed by capitalistic systems, so the oppressed worker has to rise up and by revolution throw off the capitalistic oppressors and get freedom, right? Okay, so cultural Marxism is very simple. It it, it 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 follows in that same vein oppressor and oppressed. So they diagnose the problem of the world as this there are oppressors and there are oppressed people. And that what we need to do is we need to diagnose who the oppressors are, and then the oppressed need to throw off any oppression to be set free and to be liberated. Sometimes it's called social justice, and sometimes social justice is really following in cultural Marxism, no doubt about it. So here's what it looks like. Cultural theory says this, gender is an oppressor. Saying that there's only two genders is oppressive. So what we need to do is we need to expand that to be bigger so it's not oppressive. So now Facebook has 72 different genders. So that we can throw off the heteronormative cisgender oppression, right? So that's cultural theory, critical theory having its effect on culture. It's done it with gender. It's done it, number two, with race. That when you see white studies, that is cultural critical theory having its effect on our universities. Now we need to study what it means for white, white privilege and race and those kind of things. Um, Also, uh, so capitalism obviously is a problem. So when you see these ideas about, hey, we should tax this certain group at 70, 80, 90% because they're oppressive, they have too much money, that is critical theory having its agenda when it comes to our economy, all right? Family now, here's where it gets really serious. Family, according to critical theory, is an oppressor. If you look at socialism or communism, they said the same thing. It's just falling in that same vein. That the family is a social construct that really needs to be eliminated. So now here's how this works out practically right now. You have children that are being given counseling on their gender or hormones to stop puberty and their parents are not being told. Because parents and family are an oppressor. And so we need to make sure to free those children from oppression, and that's happening in North America right now, all right? So that's the way it works out. 40 years ago, Roe versus Wade. The argument for abortion was this. That woman being pregnant for nine months is oppressive her having to raise that child inside of the circumstances that dominate her life is oppressive. So even though today, if you look at the biology of the unborn, oh my goodness, there is no question scientifically that that baby is a life. But it doesn't matter because the argument is being framed as oppressor and oppressed and we have to remove oppression. That's the power of critical Theory. Okay? So I can go on and on and on and on. It is in our world now. It's dominating the conversation. So the redefinition of the world is this. Oppressor and oppressed. And there's this new badge of honor for the individual that's been oppressed. And so there's almost like a war to be a more oppressed victim. Like I had it worse than you. My life was harder than you. And then what that means is this. Here's what critical theory says. Because my experience is harder than yours, and because you have not experienced what I've experienced, you have no right to tell me anything because you're blinded by your privilege. Have you heard that? That's a common argument now. You can't speak to us. And if you try to speak into us truth, we will shout you down or shame you by calling you a Nazi. So that's the way critical theory has really just shaped the conversation that's happening in a lot of our culture today. It's that powerful. And here's, a, here's to me is the most tragic thing about critical theory. And there are some good things about it. I just don't have time to talk about it. Critical theory has no grace It looks back and finds like some evil somebody did a while back and just trumpets that and says, look at how evil this person is. We have to tear them down, remove their name, erase them from history. That's critical theory because they're oppressors. So I'll give you an example. Mozart. I like his music. He's now on their blacklist because he wrote an opera, whatever, 250, 300 years ago that had a more. You know what M-O-O-R. It's a person of color that was viewed in a negative light. Well, he's an oppressor. He's out. Don't play his operas anymore. It triggers us. It makes me feel bad. That's what's happening right now. It's crazy, okay? So there's new definitions of things. Evil and sin are now the oppressors. The marginalized people are the ones that need to be saved or rescued. And the saints and the heroes... Are the woke, you guys know what woke means? It means the awoke person, the enlightened person, the person that knows what's going on. The woke, the saints are the woke people that are fighting against the oppressors, right? That's the new definition of the way things are and that we will set people free from oppressors by any means necessary. We'll don masks, we'll be mobs, we'll go crazy, we'll shout and yell, we'll stop you, we'll do whatever is necessary to get rid of the oppressor. And now, moral excellence is this. You be you, and you liberate yourself and other people from any oppression. So that, to me, is critical theory And how it's now influencing the world that we live in in 2019. And you can research it yourself. You can go and talk to college students. You talk to college students, that's their language right now. It's 100% their language. So you have the rise of the autonomous individual. You have this powerful force that's been around for about 70 years called critical theory, reframing the world. And then thirdly, and here's where it gets serious to me, you have what I call woke Christianity. So woke Christianity is the people that see these two forces, the rise of the autonomous individual. They see critical theory. And now they're like, yes, that's it. And they've adopted this and they've brought it into, and I hear sermons on this and I read books where I'm like, oh my goodness, that's critical theory. And their vocabulary sounds very, very similar to ours. So they'll say this. They'll say, hey, God loves you. But what they mean by saying God loves you is this. God affirms and okays your identity. They'll say, hey, love your neighbor as yourself. But what they mean by that is this. You are to affirm and okay people's identity, even if it differs from scripture. They'll say God is a God of justice. But what they mean by this is this. Not that God is a a God of justice against my wrongs to people. It's God is a God of justice against oppressors. And he's tearing down all kinds of oppression, right? So that's woke Christianity. It sounds, man, the vocabulary sounds similar, and it can just kind of bring you into something that I'll argue this is anti-Jesus. Galatians 1 says there's one gospel, and that's it. And the one gospel we believe in is this: the Bible alone is truth. Humanity. Every one of us is fallen. Jesus came to rescue us and redeem us through his death, burial, and resurrection and to change us. That there's something faulty in the human software. That Jesus says, no, it's not how you feel. There's something faulty with you. And I need you to be changed into my image. I am the truth human. Everyone else has fallen. So that's one gospel. Here's the other gospel. This is the gospel of critical theory. Truth is how you experience it. The highest moral guidance you can have is your feelings. And God's job is to rescue us from oppression and fill in your blank, whatever that oppression might be. Cis, gender, white, heteronormative sexuality rescue us from that they are opposed to each other and there is a movement right now where this cultural feeling is moving into the vocabulary of American church so those to me are the three shaping forces right now that you better be aware of okay Matt what do we do let me propose that we sell everything and buy a thousand acres in Wolf Creek. (laughs) If you know Christianity, there's a large movement that's saying that right now. I'm getting out of this area and I'm going to move over to this area. I'm leaving Grants Pass and I'm going to Idaho. Idaho. They're free in Idaho. (laughs) I just tell them, hey, it's coming for you there too. It might be a couple years, but you're not gonna run away from this. There's a book written about it. I read it. It's a good book. Great things in it. It's called The Benedict Option. The Benedict Option says, as a church, we need to withdraw from culture and society. We need to take our ball and go home. And there's some good stuff in that book. I recommend reading it. I don't believe in the Benedict option. I believe in the Daniel option. It's why we studied through the book of Daniel. What does Daniel do? He goes into the worst city in the Bible called Babylon and he stays there his whole life trying to influence it for the kingdom of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be doing, all right? So how do we do that? Right here in our text. I'll give you a couple quick things and we'll go. Number one, look at verse two. Preach the word. What do you need to preach the word? I'm going to say, you need community to do that. Doesn't do a lot of good for me to sit up here and preach if no one's here. Reprove. What do you need to reprove? Somebody else besides yourself. Rebuke. What do you need to rebuke? Other people, right? Exhort. Verse 2, how do you do everything in verse 2? Is it autonomous individual meism? No. These things only happen inside of community, right? And I'll tell you, some of this is not fun. You ever been rebuked before? Did it hurt your feelings? Yes. Right? Timothy's being told, you're going to hurt people's feelings, but that, that's okay. Why? Because sometimes. I've needed my feelings hurt because I was wrong. And a rebuke was the best thing that ever happened to me. I didn't like it at the time, <laughs> totally, but man, did I ever need it. See, we fight meism and the rise of the individual autonomous person by saying we will put ourselves into community. We will not bowl alone, we'll fight that. So, I have repeated this a bunch of times. The blue zone says there is an epidemic right now of loneliness. And the blue zone says this it says that being lonely is as dangerous to your health as smoking 20 cigarettes a day. That's crazy, right? But shouldn't Christians already know that? How does our story begin? Adam and Eve put in a really good spot, or Adam, I should say, put in a really good spot. And what does God say to Adam? It's not good for you to be alone, bro. It's like you're smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Stop it. I'm going to get you a friend. We fight this autonomous thing by belonging to people, allowing ourselves to be rebuked and reproved, right? That's what we're supposed to do. So people sit at home and they podcast now. And I tell them, hey, that's okay if you're an invalid or if you're in the hospital. But if not, plug into a group of people and belong with them. Do not bowl alone. 120 times the New Testament says one to another. Community, community, community. But Matt, church is hard. Yeah, I know. I get it. It's hard, but it's healthy. It is so healthy and necessary for us. It's like this. It's like eating Brussels sprouts, okay? Does anyone like Brussels sprouts? No, nobody likes Brussels sprouts. You don't like Brussels sprouts. Don't ruin my illustration. We eat Brussels sprouts today. It might be hard to eat them today, but we know it makes me healthy tomorrow. Sometimes we allow reproving and rebuking and community, as difficult as it may be because we know this leads to a healthy tomorrow. And I'll put myself under it and I'll listen to this because it makes me healthy. get involved, right? There's all kinds of ways to serve. You can serve here, right? Go park cars on a Sunday morning. Get some empathy for people like, oh, this was harder than I thought, okay. Help out with our special needs crew, Amen. Man, they're awesome. Nine o'clock service. Go to Joe's place. Meet some kids. Talk their language, right? Go to the gospel rescue mission. You're just saying, this is what I need to do. I need to be constantly plugging myself into community over and over. Mondays for ladies, Fridays for men. You just say, I am going to put myself into community because I will not bowl alone. It's an epidemic that must be stopped. So we fight me as the autonomous individual by just saying, it's community. That's what we'll do. Then he goes on. Verse four. Some will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. They don't listen to the truth. They go into myths. We're supposed to listen to truth and be sober-minded. The church, this thing right here, or whatever church you go to, is to be the center of truth, that when people come into church, they know, I will get truth in this place. The, tru- the church is supposed to have a, I just call it a prophetic voice that speaks back into culture what is true over and over and over again, and the church has to be very careful of sacrificing that prophetic voice for convenience. And what I'm gonna say next is gonna make you mad. And I'm okay with that. Matt2Ts at EdgewaterFellowship.org. <laughs> we have to be careful of this. When it comes to politics, the church has to be a prophetic voice and not partnered with politics. You read Billy Graham's biography. He says this, the biggest mistake I made in my life was partnering too close to a president because I lost my prophetic voice to him. I could no longer speak truth because I was too close to him. We have to be so careful about that. So here's where I'm gonna make you mad. All right, let's go case study. President Obama, good president, bad president. Okay, let's talk about him. President Obama married the same woman for years and years and years. Is that good or bad? That's good. President Obama used his position to tackle a very difficult subject to his race. And you can Google it and find it. He said, to his race, he says, we have to learn how to be fathers, not conceivers. And he talked about what it means to raise children. Did he raise a good set of daughters? Sure seems like it. Is that good or bad? Good. And as the church, with our prophetic voice, we should say, that is good. That is good. Now, he also signed the gay marriage in, right? And we'll talk about that in these coming lessons, where we would say as a church that believes in the authority of scripture, we'd say, that's bad. That's a prophetic voice, right? That's what we're supposed to do, all right? President Trump. Yeah. I get more emails when I say anything about Trump than anything else, okay? Because there is a part of the church that is cozied up so close to him now, that's impossibly a prophetic voice anymore. Read Isaiah. Read Jeremiah. Read all the prophets. They point at kings and said, when they did stuff wrong, you did that wrong. All right? And people get mad at me. I'm like, listen, the way that he carries himself at times is unkind. It's unkind. And then they'll say this to me. Well, Matt, that's just the way he is. And I'll say, so who else do you give that to do you give that to your husband if he's unkind to you? And you say, well, that's just the way he is. This is going to be the next 50 years. It's going to be really brutal and hard. No. Okay, we should never lose our prophetic voice. What we say is good according to truth, we say that's good. And what is bad, no matter who that person is, we say that is wrong. And we got to stop doing this thing where it's, well, he's our favorite guy or he's our hated guy, so we can't do that stuff. No way. We're a prophetic voice that says this is truth and we keep injecting truth back into our culture. That's how we keep our voice. And we're gonna be very careful. We listen to truth with a sober mind. And then lastly, and I'm done. Verse five, as for you, always be sober-minded and during suffering, do the work of an evangelist. She needs to be saved. Do I love the sound of babies? It tells me life, right? Yes. Babies crying is life. It's the best sound in the world, unless it's 2 a.m. Do the work of an evangelist. Who needs to be saved? Good guys? Yes. Yes. Good guys need to be saved. Read the Pharisees. They were the good guys. Jesus said, you need to be saved. Bad guys. Yes. Everyone needs to be saved. All have fallen short of the glory of God, right? Who needs to be saved? Everybody needs to be saved. This is so important. Because what happens is this. We, instead of becoming evangelists, we become emotionalists. So, have you heard the term culture war? Right? Pretty common term that we are right now involved in a culture war. Now, if as believers we say we're in a culture war, then who is the enemy? Who becomes the enemy in a culture war? Pelosi. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Let's be honest. AOC or if you're on the other side, Trump, whatever it is. What happens when we say we are in a culture war, we have to become the us-them mentality, and we've got to find a them that's the enemy. Is that a biblical framing of the world we live in? No way. The Bible never says we're at war with people. The Bible says there's a war, 100%. But guess what that war is with? A snake from Genesis that wrapped around the human heart and is injecting poison every single day. The one that Jesus says is here to steal and to kill and to destroy. The one that Paul says, Ephesians 6 verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. The battle battle is real, but it's not against culture because culture is made up of people that need to be saved. We need to do the work of evangelism, right? And I'll tell you, this is my struggle, 100%, because I tended to demonize people that I didn't like. And there was a watershed moment in my life that changed me. It was when Bill Clinton was president. Did the church look fondly on Bill Clinton? Mm-mm. Neither did I, right? Slick willy. And then the adultery with Monica Lewinsky comes out. The Star Report comes out. It was like, yeah, that filthy animal, Slick Willie. Until I saw this footage of Bill Clinton getting off Air Force One, Hillary Clinton getting off Air Force One, and they were walking as far apart as they could. Body language, right? Here comes a teenage Chelsea Clinton comes up in between them, grabs her dad's hand, pulls him over, grabs her mom's hand, pulls her over as they walk off. My heart broke. Because I come from a broken home because of adultery. I thought, that poor girl, having to live that nightmare out in front of an entire world that's just heaping it on, poor girl. That's a broken family. Why doesn't my heart pray for them why doesn't grace get extended to them? Why am I demonizing them? Because of the wrong tribe. Because of us versus them. Do the work of an evangelist. Good guys, bad guys, all guys need to be saved. So I read this book, it's a great one. It's called Culture Care, not Culture War, Culture Care. We're to care for culture? It's by uh, Makamoto Fujimura, brilliant book. And he says this, He says that we are to be border crossers like Jesus. That Jesus crossed the greatest border ever from heaven to earth. And when he came to earth, what did he do? Did he hang out with just his tribe? No. One moment he's hanging out with a rich young ruler, with Josephus, the power center of that time. And then the other other moment he's hanging out with prostitutes and adulterers and tax collectors. Why? Because Jesus knew they all need to be saved. I'm gonna cross every line, cross every border I possibly can to bring in those that need to know my love. We're to be that. We're not to be, hey, this is my tribe and us versus them. No, do the work of an evangelist. And then when people get saved, here's what you get to tell them. It's Galatians 3, verse 28. And it says this. There is now neither Jew or Gentile, your race doesn't define you. There's neither slave nor free, it's not oppressor and oppressed. There's neither male nor female. Your sexuality does not identify you. But all are one in Jesus. That as believers in Jesus, we get a brand new identity. It's not based on anything that was before. Our new identity is this. You were once in the kingdom of darkness, but now you've been brought in to the kingdom of light. That now you are his workmanship, his poem, his masterpiece. You are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. You are kings and queens in training to rule and reign with King Jesus for eternity. That's your new identity. And that's what we share with people. You've been brought in. To the family. You belong to him now. Now walk it out and become like him. Join us as we do that. And so every Sunday we take communion because it reminds us of that. It reminds us that I got saved not because I was the good guy, I was the bad guy, I was fallen. I had a glitch in my software. I needed my heart to be changed. And so we come to the table and we're reminded of that so that we leave this place and we extend grace and mercy to people that need to be saved as well. We do the work of evangelists. And if you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if I've been saved, if I've been adopted, if I've been brought in, we have a baptismal right out here. Every Sunday in the summer season, we can open these doors. We give the opportunity to say, I want to be part of King Jesus's family. And you come over there and you believe in the one that died for you. And you go into the waters of baptism, the old you dying, and you're resurrected to a new life that Jesus gives to you by his grace. So you can do that. And so Jesus today, May we be like the people of Issachar who understood their times and knew what to do. May we see the culture around us and may we not cry about it. May we see it as an opportunity that the fields are white for the harvest today, that people are lonely and miserable and we have the answer in our hand, in our heart right now and that we would share the brilliant work that you've done on our behalf. And we ask this in your name, amen.